don't mess with the bagel. Don't mess with perfection. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and I am joined today by only one of my two co-hosts, Liel Leibowitz. Hello. Hi. Where in the world is Mark Oppenheimer? Who knows? He is on his book tour. He is at your local JCC. Uh, he's on the road. So we're letting him go for a little bit. Mark is wherever people believe in Mark. He slides down the chimney every night. If you leave him milk and cookies, he will visit your house and sign a copy of a book about Pittsburgh. He probably has a very specific milk and cookie order. It's like whole milk and his own personal Madeleine. And a fribble. Today, we bring you Mark's interview with Alice McDermott, a Catholic novelist who recently came out with a book of essays about the craft of writing titled, What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction. But first, Liel, it's just you and me. Dad's not here. How are you? What's going on? Well, today is my Gregorian calendar birthday. And it's not just your birthday, Liel. I will tell you that today in my calendar, I have Liel's birthday slash Kristallnacht. Correct. Yes. So happy birthday, Liel. By the way, uh, growing up in Israel, that was always a very joyous day. Like, <laughs> oh, it's your it's your day today? Yeah, because we have a school assembly where we all have to wear white and have a moment of silence. Okay, happy birthday, asshole. Wait, that, that assembly wasn't for your birthday? <laughs> well, I thought it was. Like, it's really nice of all of you to, you know, have a little sticker with like a red flower on it and keep your heads down for a minute. I think like when you reach my age, the whole notion of a birthday is so stupid. After 40, I think your birthday should just be like, you get a three-minute call with your gastroenterologist and be like, your Colin is doing great. Happy birthday. Th- that should be the, the entire thing. May I ask how old you are today? I am 45 years old. That's amazing. But I celebrated my real birthday, which is my Jewish birthday, which is Tetzai and Becheshvan represent a few weeks ago, which is a lot of fun because it's like having a secret birthday. Like you get to walk around the world and everyone's like, why are you smiling? Like, because it's my secret Jewish birthday and you don't even know. I do have to say that you sharing your birthday with Crystal Nacht, the night of the broken glass, is one of my favorite parts about you. Like that you wouldn't just have, I mean, this is, of course, your your Gentile birthday or whatever you would call it. Oh, by the way, night of Crystal Nacht, night of the assassination of the Archduke Franz Joseph, and night of the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's actually a name for November 9th in German. It's called the Terrible Day, basically. The, the <laughs> Fuchtbarentag. It's, it's the Day of Terrors, which suits me just fine. Leo, happy day of terrors to you. Um, what kind of terrors are you doing for your birthday? I am doing a make your own terror pizza night with the kids, <laughs> uh, followed by make your own terrible Sunday night also with the kids and drinking a lot of very nice pomeroles, which I had procured for the occasion. What's the terroir of those? The terroir of the day of terroirs uh, is very French and very lovely. I'm excited about your birthday. I'm, I have to tell you, I'm a little tired. My nacht was actually a little stressful because baby wasn't really sleeping, but I, I wanted to tell you that I was scrolling the internet at about 4.40 this morning, Googling things like, <laughs> took baby out of swaddle, into sleep sack, arms out, how long until they learn how to sleep again? And I found myself on a website, some mommy blog, obviously. It's not a regular blog. It's a mommy blog. Um, and this is about, this is what they call swaddle transition tactic three, cold turkey. The STS3. <laughs> they, they say cold turkey is the postmodern approach to weaning the swaddle. Because basically your baby is swaddled, arms are in, and then at one point you need, at some point you need to like let their arms out. And so that's where I'm at right now. Hold on. You're supposed to let their, oh my God. I think I made a terrible mistake. Time to apologize to my 10 year old. <laughs> She's like, okay, your arms can be out. It's okay. Why are you wrapping me up like a burrito? (laughs) But basically, I'm reading this, and it's it's, so it's giving you different options, right? Option three is cold turkey. Um, and then it says, think through your baby's personality before starting the cold turkey anti-swaddling approach. It may just save you a nuclear holocaust of tears. And I'm like, 
I know it's 449 in the morning, but right. that is an inappropriate way to describe the transition Correct. out of a swaddle. <laughs> it just might save you a Dachau of frustration. But like a nuclear holocaust, and, and holocaust not capitalized, which I noticed, which is because if it's a nuclear holocaust, that that is a different, obviously a different holocaust. But I'm like... I don't think you get to decide what is or is not a nuclear holocaust of tears. Yeah, you don't get to own the holocaust. As a third generation survivor, that's not what you want to see at 4.48 in the morning. As a third generation mom of a fourth generation baby, we find this phrasing offensive. Call grandma and be like, so when you were in the camps, did you think a lot about (laughs) swaddling? Because if not, this is fucking offensive. Anyway, I just realized that there's like a whole new world of content that I can make fun of. Um, Were you like, my baby crying really reminds me of the time when the SS lined all of us up at five? (laughs) Like, no. I just was like, I don't know. This feels hyperbolic. I think we're going to get through the night. Find a different metaphor, Gentiles. But you know, they do say work sets you free, but actually being out of the swaddle sets you free. (laughs) You're never too young to never forget. News of the Jews, N-O-T-J, News of the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, Leah, let's get to some news of some people who are not us. I'm going to take us to the campus of GW in D.C. Last weekend, there was an incident at the Tau Kappa Epsilon Fraternity House. Someone broke into the house and appears to have vandalized a bunch of stuff, including a Torah scroll. This is from the Washington Post. Fraternity President Chris Osborne said that hot sauce was smeared across walls and cabinets of the house. Smoke detectors ripped out of the ceilings and blue detergent poured over a copy of a Torah, which was thrown on the ground. And there's, of course, a picture circulating online of like a small Torah scroll covered in blue tide detergent. I mean, look, it's horrible, but everything about the story is kind of messed up and funny. Fraternity President Chris Osborne McGentile Cuddy said, you know, we always keep a Torah scroll in our fraternity house because otherwise, how would we daven shachris after our all-night keggers? I'm sorry, why does this fraternity have a Torah scroll? So basically, this is a fraternity where, you know, there are a lot of Jewish members. I don't know why there's a Torah scroll. And I actually am curious for people who who are like the A-Pies, like, I want to hear from from our listeners if there there was, in fact, Torah scrolls at your frat house. Because I guess if you're going to, like, dive in on Saturday morning, like, you need one there. I'm imagining them drunk on the lawn going, Torah, Torah, <laughs> Torah. But I just, I mean, this is really, really sad. I mean, obviously, there's, like, a, a weird climate on campus right now where Jewish students don't feel particularly safe. And then, I don't know, someone, like, doing, like, the Tide Pod challenge on your uh Torah scroll just like feels kind of icky. The vandals smashed my stender. But, but the thing that this quote from the Washington Post, like hot sauce was smeared. I read that initially as smeared across walls. Um, <laughs> and so I guess I'm reading into that. They took all the herring out of the fridge and left it out to spoil overnight. I just really want to join this fraternity now. I'm just imagining like the greatest communal living, just davening and studying all day long. Yeah, we want to get to the bottom of this. If you are on GW's campus. Give us the inside scoop of the hot sauce smearing. Or Chris Chris Osborne, give us give us a call. Tell us what it's like to preside over the uh, Jewiest fraternity on earth. I wonder if like the hot sauce thing was like, was there like a bottle of sriracha on the counter? And like, that's what, like, was hot sauce part of the hate crime of this? And with, with the hot sauce, they wrote, we know you all have sensitive stomachs. <laughs> 
Take this, acid reflux sufferers. Speaking of Jewish tummies, this next item comes to us from Fast Company. Here's a quote. It looks like an ordinary bagel, but a new product called the Better Bagel has more than twice the protein of a standard bagel and a fraction of the carbohydrates. This is Better Brand, which is a food tech startup, created the Better Bagel. And apparently a regular bagel, this article says, might have between 50 and 60 net carbs, which apparently are the carbohydrates that are fully digestible, versus only five in one of these new bagels. So basically like healthy bagels is what Better Brand is bringing us. Liel, you're the Better Bagel Bureau. What do you think of the Better Bagel? Having not tried the Better Bagel, I'm sure it's very delicious. I think the world is coming to an end. Really, do we need to mess with bagels? Isn't it bad enough to be given it to the Gentiles to sell at airports all throughout the country? Like, do, do we also need to genetically engineer a bagel now? Well, here's what founder and CEO Amy Yang says. If we can make beans into meat, then why can't we use food tech to enable a world where we can eat freely and to change the foods that we crave the most that are the worst for us? Let's take pills that make us not eat at all. Let's let's take it all the way. Let's Let's <laughs> have all our food supplements in a pill. This just like strikes me as something that drains all joy and fun out of life. And I'm against it. Enough with this already. Enough tech bros. Stop disrupting my breakfast. It is funny. Like, I feel like the bagel, actually, the point of the bagel is to be like a heavy flour-based thing. Right. Like, that, you want the full experience. I do not want protein from that bagel. Which poor Jews made so that they will have, you know, full tummies then get them through their miserable day because they were just struggling to survive. And I was like, well, you know, you could have a, a fifth of the calories and a tenth of the net carbohydrates. Like, I, I don't want that. I want all the carbohydrates. My grandfather's family did not suffer in the Holocaust for me to have not enough carbohydrates, I tell you. It actually is. It does feel profoundly un-Jewish. And again, I do want to hear from the people who are like, no, no, no. Modified foods, very Jewish. You guys had the whole Impossible Burger conversation, kosher stuff. Um, but I do like this idea of like in Bialystok, there's like the Bialy inventor and someone's like, hmm. Max Bialystok. <laughs> what about the net carbs? Like, are, what, what's with the net carb content in here? Gimple the baker, you know, was selling his bagels and the, a woman walks into the shadow. Well, Gimple, I really like the bagel, but could you please, could you, could you just show me the, the nutritional label? Because I don't like that the net carbs are like 50 grams. Can you make it with five? She's like, and, and can this idea scale? This bagel thing? That, that's the IB Singer story that no one no one has ever read. Have we ever talked about IB Singer's initials or IBS? Do, have we talked about this on this podcast or just in other parts of my life? I mean, it goes without saying. It's, <laughs> it's a shirt. <laughs> what other Jew Nobel Prize laureate would there be if not IBS? By the way, the Bialy versus the bagel is like kind of a really great optimization hack. I've totally migrated to Bialy's now. That's it. This is my new, this is my last stand. Interesting. I'm all about the pumpernickel bagel right now. That's a very, very hardcore choice. Let's stop genetically modifying food. You know what? Eat meat if you eat meat. Eat much less of it. And then we don't need to pretend like we have some soy supplement that is supposed to be some kind of meat. Just be normal. Just eat a little bit of meat of very high quality, humanely raised and ethically sourced, and everything will be fine. And don't have it 17 times a day. Have it like once a week, like a person should. It's not hard to figure out when thinking about life what you're supposed to do, Th that we've lost all ability to kind of conceptualize what eating should be like. It's really an indication of how far we've fallen as a species. I mean, think about what life was for humans up until, forget Jews, right, which were a totally different category of human, but for humans up until three minutes ago, like who had, you know, mass amounts of food? No one. You, you had to struggle to get a little bit to eat and then you ate it and then sustained you and it was fine. Thank God we've moved past these days, but that's not an invitation to like, eat the whole 
whole bag of like Doritos Locos or other stuff made in laboratories. Just eat natural, normal foods, ethically raised, organically grown in, you know, smallish quantities. You'll be fine. It's not hard. Stop engineering things. Don't touch my bagel. Rant over. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. McDermott is a Catholic writer who won the National Book Award for her 1998 novel, Charming Billy. Mark spoke with her about her recent book of essays on the craft of writing, as well as her Catholic faith, her frustration with the church, and what she misses now that she's no longer teaching. So Alice McDermott, I hope you won't mind if I begin with a story, if I begin with me. When I was a college, I don't know, sophomore, junior, it would have been 94, 95, something like that. I'd had a really rough fall semester and I came home and my mother had asked for a Hanukkah list of what we wanted. And I believe that Charming Billy had just been nominated or won 
Was it the National Book Award or the Pulitzer? Which was the big one it won? The National Book Award. The National Book Award. Charming Billy was very much in the news. And I thought, well, I'll try that. And so it was one of the two or three books I asked for. And I got it. And I remember the experience of lying on the sofa in my parents' den and just curling up with it and feeling like this was exactly the book I needed. It was beautifully written. It was masterful. It felt timeless. And also it felt incredibly absorptive as if it were the best beach read ever. It was all of those things. And I don't have a lot of reading experiences like that in my past. And I've read a lot of stuff, but it's pretty rare that I remember the visceral feeling of where I was, the temperature in the room, the blankets over me, and how good the book felt. There are probably 10 books I remember that way. And yours was one of them. So I wanted to begin by just saying thank you. Oh, my goodness. Well, can I say thank you to your mother? <laughs> <laughs> Who I didn't will... say, what book are you asking for? <laughs> and wouldn't you rather have socks? <laughs> she had definitely given me some socks that year. You have to get through eight nights. So sooner or later, you have to give something besides socks. So I want to begin with that book because that was the one that got into my bones first of your corpus. And of course, Billy was one of the great literary drunks. Were you writing from personal experience? Did you know drunks? Sure. I mean, Billy was probably an amalgam of distant relatives, stories that I had heard, and my peers as well. The culture of drinking was not a strange one to me. But I think what sort of compelled me to write Billy's story was the fact that it was such a cliche. It's a cliche, unfortunately, that the Irish community has never shed and probably never really objected to. This is the problem with the Irish. You say something terrible about them, they'll say, yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So I was interested in this idea of a complete ethnic stereotype, the lovable, drunken Irishman. And yet I knew from my experience and from what little bit I knew about human nature was that it's also true alcoholics are rife in many extended families, but certainly in any Irish American extended family. So the challenge I set for myself was how do you write into the stereotype? And texture it. Yeah. Discover what's unique to say, yes, that's true. But what about this guy? There's more to it than that. He is the lovable drunk, but how is his life made possible by the people who love him? And the people who love him don't see him in terms of the stereotype. They see him as an irreplaceable human being. So how do you capture that in fiction without undermining the stereotype, without saying, oh, no, really, he wasn't, didn't drink that much. (laughs) You know, he's, or he's, wasn't such a good guy. Everybody loved him, but he was really an awful person. The undermining of the stereotype seems the easy path. The accepting of the stereotype and yet still individualizing it and finding the value in the human being who adheres to the stereotype so completely. That's the challenge for fiction, I think. One of the other lines I remember from the book, I feel like it was toward the end, where you're writing about the marriage And you say something like the widow was almost proud that she, that now that her husband was dead, she felt that they'd made it across the finish line. That the fact that the marriage had ended with death rather than abandonment or the unthinkable divorce or whatever meant they'd succeeded. They'd made it to the finish line. That just stuck with me as a kind of, you know, bleak, but also beautiful idea of marriage. As I went on to read other works of yours, it occurred to me, there are a lot of difficult but persisting marriages. There are people who are often because of the time in which they live, but even in more contemporary times, they stay married. What kind of religion did you get growing up? What was church going like for you? And what were the things you absorbed from the catechism about the important stuff? Because of course, 
the impossibility of divorce is one of the things that's so mysterious to non-Catholics. But that actually seems to hold very richly in your fiction. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, There is that persistence in the face of misery, <laughs> which um, I suppose speaks to how I was raised. I mean, I was raised in a very typical Irish Catholic suburban post-war community and childhood. Everybody I knew was either Catholic or Jewish. You know, there were a few Protestants <laughs> scattered here and there, but we didn't really get what they were about. You know, they they fell somewhere in between the two true faiths. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. We don't know what they're talking about. So yeah, it was Baltimore Catechism. It was defined rules. It was church every Sunday. It was confession once a month. I went to Catholic schools. I was taught by nuns. So uh, the complete stereotypical, but not necessarily. And I think this is this is a mistake many people make when they think about anyone raised with that kind of religious tradition. Not necessarily unquestioning, not necessarily burdensome to be offered this faith. My faith was offered to me as this is what we think is the best for you the people who love you, your parents, your family, your teachers, your church. This is what we are offering you. And we believe it. And we think it's true. But that's not to say that you are wrong if you object or if you pause or if you ask. I mean, conversations about the spirit were part of my education from grammar school on. It was not burdensome. It was a sense of tradition, a sense of, yes, we are the the one true church, <laughs> you know, and this is really the only path to salvation. But don't make other people feel bad by telling them we've got it and they haven't. But I think that what maybe I've carried forward, and I still sort of regard myself as a practicing Catholic, although it becomes more and more difficult to claim this troubled church. But I think it is that sense of this is difficult. This is hard. Faith isn't going to make it any easier. Faith is going to take you through the hard times, but that doesn't mean they're not going to exist. And so I see that in my characters who, you know, have this kind of solid upbringing. Even if they pull against it, there's that sense of suffering is part of it. That's the story of Christianity. (laughs) Suffering is part of it. Don't fool yourself into thinking there's anything you can do to get around it, which includes leaving your spouse who's driving you crazy or making you miserable. Right, that religion isn't a program for happiness. Yes, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's not self-helpy. It's not, if you do this, you'll be free of anxiety or you will be, I mean, certainly not Catholicism and not Judaism. I think there are, this is grossly stereotyping, but I sometimes feel there are forms of a kind of postmodern megachurch Protestantism that offer you the rock concert and say, this will be a high. But that's not what Catholicism was ever doing. I want to go back to something you just said about how it becomes harder as you get older with this troubled church. You know, I've had Catholic friends of mine say that. I've known people who are really formed by the church, and some of them say things like it gets harder as you get older or with this troubled church. And I always want to say, well, why? Why has it gotten harder? Because the world changes and not necessarily in a negative way. The church has always been a huge ship to turn around. I think part of it is not just the disappointment that Catholics may feel, not so much because priests were flawed people, but the institution was flawed in acknowledging its own mistakes. We are a church that's all about penance. 
not just saying you're sorry, but outward signs of inner grace. And the Catholic Church, having acknowledged the sins of its priest, has failed to, in any outward sign, do penance. Just to say, well, we're not going to let that happen again. Or next time a priest abuses a child, we're calling the police. (laughs) It's kind of too late. But the wonderful tradition of the church, the outward sign, the sense that what we do that we can see reflects the things we can't see, a true penance, a true asking for forgiveness, the church is sort of dug in and refused to do that. And I see that as a deeper moral failing that, again, makes it difficult to weigh my own love for the church against the recalcitrance of the sinners within it. And the sinners within it are running the place to a great extent. Yeah, it's not that, um, again, we all know about original sin. And if you don't, you can read Flannery O'Connor and find out about it. But that's not enough. It's, it's, it's not just to say, yeah, there are failings. It's to ask the institution to, in its own terms, deal with its failings. It's failing to recognize the equality of women. It's failure to understand that human sexuality is not the simplistic thing it was in the 18th century, that the welfare of the soul and that love is primary. The failure to recognize that is the thing that I think discourages most of us who are hanging on by our fingertips to this institution. (laughs) Do you still go to Mass? I do on occasion. The shutdown didn't help, and I resist the politics that tend sometimes to creep in. I've done Zoom Masses, and there's a woman-led series of Masses here in the D.C. area that I've been tuning into one of those women priests who should have been excommunicated, but <laughs> but somehow is still saying mass. And also offering communion? Yes. Yeah, that's a no-no, right? Yeah, yeah. We're in the catacombs, you know, early Christians hiding. The, the catacombs looks like suburban backyards right now. <laughs> so they're in suburban backyards and Zooming masses and giving the bread and wine. And giving sermons and, and saying, we can do this and hang on have hope, the church will write itself. In your new book of essays, What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction, which I was so glad to get because I'm a real junkie for books by writers about writing. I just love process books. And I, in fact, find them strangely soothing, maybe just because it's so comforting to hear that other writers go through the same struggles. (laughs) Early on in this book, you are talking about a terrible fire that happened on Father's Day on Long Island. And you write the sentence, I was visiting Long Island at the time and like many other New Yorkers, had this account provided to me by the New York Daily News. Three days of front page stories filled with the sad, ironic, heroic details, as well as the familiar photographs. Official fire department portraits and grinning photos of the men among their children. And then the orderly rows of firefighters outside the various churches, the flag-draped coffins on the fire trucks, the sobbing eight-year-old clutching his father's helmet. And it's a, it's a beautiful essay that gets into literature and Mark Halperin, I believe, whose stuff I've never read, but who I've always heard is terrific. And yet the thing I want to ask you is very pedantic, which is you say, like many other New Yorkers, you had this account provided to you by the Daily News. And I was thinking, I bet almost no other writers of literary fiction ever read the Daily News because it's a, wor- it's a working class newspaper. It's very much infra dig. It's not the kind of thing that people who read the New York Review of Books or the Paris Review ever consult. It's the kind of thing their grandparents might have consulted. I guess two questions. First of all, 
Do you still read, do you get the tabloids? Do you get the post and the daily news? And then the second thing is, does it ever bother you how few of your peers in the literary arts would ever read the daily news? Or is that just me? <laughs> when I'm on Long Island, especially if I'm visiting family, the daily news shows up. And it never occurred to me that I may be the only National Book Award winner who reads it. I grew up reading it, of course, in Elmont, Long Island. Yeah, I, you know, we don't listen to each other anymore. It's not just a political problem. I do like to see what people are saying who I might not agree with or who I feel are not as well-read as I am in other areas. Um, I can't imagine any writer who wouldn't be curious about what the New York Daily News, even the, the New York Post or Fox News is saying. Our curiosity, I think, if we are to be writers, should should always supersede our politics and our disdain. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And I feel the exact same way, which is how could you not want to know? I mean, this is this is life. This is humanity. And yet I was thinking you just when you just mentioned how we should all go read Flannery O'Connor, which, of course, we should. I'm sure there are fiction writers who don't teach Flannery O'Connor anymore because of the depictions of black people in some of her stories. Right. And some of these people who I think would refuse to teach Flannery O'Connor are credentialed writers, people who've won awards like the ones you've won, people who have tenure at places like the place where you have tenure. I mean, it's these aren't troglodytes who are sticking their heads in the sand. These are, you know, some days I feel that the desire to look away is almost a majoritarian impulse at this point. And I guess, does that worry you at all? Or again, am I just being... No, it does worry me. Just down the road in Virginia, there's been a lot of conversation of late about Toni Morrison's beloved that it upset a senior in high school. You know, when I hear that a senior in high school in a Virginia high school was upset by reading Beloved, I say, yes. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what literature is supposed to do. I'm made uncomfortable by any suppression of the writer's voice. And I think a lot of it arises out of our creeping misunderstanding about what literature does. Literature ain't in editorials. Literature ain't Fox News or MSNBC. Literature is not about trying to convince you. It's about so much more than that. It's about the complexity of being human that none of us has time to contemplate and appreciate while we're busy living. But but literature is the pause and the literary artist is the the mind that allows us to see life in ways that we would not have seen it otherwise if we hadn't read the book. So any objection to a piece of literature because of its subject matter makes me uncomfortable and worried. Elsewhere in What About the Baby, you write, I expect a lot of fiction. I'm curious, what do you expect of fiction? Well, all of it. Um, uh, making sense of life and death is is one of the refrains. I've been accused of setting the bar too high in that essay. And stopping time. I mean, the incident that, that you referred to, the death of those firefighters in June of 2001, before 9-11, the tragedy of it, the heartache of it, the pathos of those pictures in the Daily News, One of the tragedies, not so much of how the fire happened and how it could have been stopped and the fact that it was Father's Day and the irony that the hardware store where the fire was would not have been closed except that it was Father's Day and these men were fathers, all that, the real stuff, the things that actually happened, underlying that is the sense that 
And yet, given all this tragedy, given the sadness, given the heartache, we as human beings living in time will move on from it. Those children will move on from it. They may miss their fathers forever, but they will move on. Literature keeps us from moving on. Literature makes the moment, the tragedy of it, the loss of it, somehow permanent. In my mind, that elevates the human tragedy into something timeless. So that's why reading this real-life story, I felt so compelled to go back and read Mark Helprin's story, White Gardens, which is about the death of firefighters, because that's preserved forever. I can pluck that off my shelf right now and revisit the tragedy, and it is as as real and emotional and unchanging as it was the first time I read the story. The story of the actual firefighters we read now through what happened in September of that same year, and it's changed. Just last night, I was speaking at the Jewish Community Center in Baltimore about this book I just wrote about the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh three years ago. And I got a question I always get, which is people say, how has Squirrel Hill, the neighborhood, how has it changed since the shooting? And I realized that the only honest answer is not that much because people move on, people heal. And there's a way in which I sometimes feel that my audience is disappointed, you know, that they want to hear that people have either gotten much, much better or that they've completely fallen apart, which is the kind of thing that can happen. I mean, sometimes in the aftermath of a mass killing or a a tragedy, there are people whose lives do come off the rails and there's, there's story there. But by and large, places look the same because the wounds kind of heal over and things get sutured. And I like what you just said about, you know, but the the literary account of it is what keeps remembering because actually the people themselves, if they're healthy, they start going about their days again. And that's to be desired. (laughs) Right. That that's a good thing. Exactly. We must. You must move on. But I do feel that, that um, and, you know, this is this is not news to anyone who's, who's had high school English. You know, um, literature says these are the truths of our experience that are timeless. These are the experiences of being a human, a mortal on this earth that are timeless. And I think too much of our focus on literature of late, and a lot of this has to do with how literature is taught, I think, has to do with the context and what's the story about around the essential preservation and identification of what it is to be a human being that literature is after. We need story. We need details. We need place and context and subject matter to get there. But what we're aiming for is that moment that all of us recognize as this, yeah, this is what it it means to be alive. You mentioned that that's one of the truths we should get about literature in high school English. And I think if we have a good high school English teacher, as I did, maybe we get it. Are you still teaching? Not regularly. No, no. I'm retired from Johns Hopkins. But you you taught there for many years and you have taught at other places as well. And I'm, I'm curious what teaching gave you besides an income and If you'd had been heiress to a large trust, would you have taught or would you just have written full time? I'll I'll tell you the thing I'm missing most about not being in a writer's workshop in a regular way. Um, I can't make people read what I want them to read. (laughs) I can't grab my husband by the collar and say, let me read this to you because this is really great. But I could do that to my students all the time. Um, And I think that's what craft books essentially come down to, at least certainly mine. 
I don't think anything any critic or even a fellow fiction writer can say about a great work of literary art is equal to the thing itself. And it's the thing itself that you want to compel people to see. So that's the missionary in me (laughs) that I'm missing. And also, as you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's that to be reminded that to even aspire, never mind to achieve, but even to aspire to create a work of literary art is work. It's hard. And you don't accrue any benefits by having done it once or twice or having completed a novel or pulled off a novel or won an award. You start a new story, you start a a new book, and you're a novice again. And so when you're teaching, you are elbow to elbow with fellow novices, no matter how much they've written or how old you are. So I miss that. I think I would have done that even if I had been independently wealthy. <laughs> are there any students you remember particularly well, either because of the what they gave you as students in class or because of the work they've gone on to do? Oh, certainly. And I, and I hear from, from many of my students who, who have lives as writers, which is really wonderful. The peculiar thing that I've noticed about myself is maybe because I'm terrible with names, but I can hear from a student from 20 years ago, and I'll look at the name and try to place them. And then I'll ask, or they'll say, Remember, I wrote that story about, you know, the summer camp and I'll be like, the story about the summer camp. Yes, I don't remember your name or your face, but boy, I remember that story. And I think that's that's one of the, again, one of the really wonderful things about teaching is that that sense of you enter into these worlds that are just being discovered by young writers. At another point in your book, in the essay, Advice from Me to Me, You write at the end, what advice would I offer my younger self? None. What would be the use? What did you mean by that? Um, Another thing that I've discovered in, in all those years of teaching is that the best writers are the ones who reject your advice immediately. (laughs) Uh, They listen, they hear, but you have this sense of as soon as you say, ah, you know, maybe a novel from, you know, the point of view of a puppy is, um, and you can see behind their eyes, you know, they're thinking, I can do it. You know, yes, yeah, I know, I know the, the common wisdom would be this is a mistake, but I can do it. So I know myself as a as a young writer would have responded and I had wonderful teachers and I learned a great deal from them. But I think always in the back of your mind, this is probably true of any artist, why else would you choose this ridiculous path, this overgrown and unclear path to practice any art? In the back of your mind, it's nothing applies to your work. <laughs> you know? The world hasn't seen this yet. Um, As much as you know, probably the world has. Do you feel that you've faced sexism and do you feel you've faced ageism? And if so, which was worse? (laughs) Um, Yeah, yes, of course, both. Uh, The ageism is surprising me a little bit. I'm still a, a woman writer. I've kind of reconciled myself to that. Even when people are are singing your praises, often you'll stumble over. And really, I think she's probably the best woman writer. 
<laughs> the, best, the best Irish Catholic suburban soccer mom, <laughs> woman writer, you know. And, you know, it, in my literary education, it took years before I had women writers offered as role models. Um, that's okay. I learned a lot from the men. A good work is a good work. Um, the ageism is a little bit more surprising to me. Maybe because as I was coming up, there was that sense of the venerable, wise, mostly male, but the writer who has been with us for a long time. And I hear now, and and it's not only directed at myself, I hear it directed at other women writers of my generation, a sense of, well, that was then, this is now, that I don't see applied to, to men. So I'm 47. Although to the 20-year-old, you and I are the same age. Yes. <laughs> um, my feeling from the students I teach, the undergrads, is that in the past 10 years, that's right, the sense that, that the elders have some wisdom and are to be venerated has completely collapsed. There's nobody who thinks, oh, there's a 60-year-old writer, let alone 70, whom I want to sit at the feet of and learn. There's no reverence at all. And of course, reverence was always, you know, it was, it could be a vice as well as a virtue. And, you know, you had to certainly had to pick the right people. And even then you had to move beyond them. And, but the sense that, that I had of wanting to meet certain 60 or 70 year old masters, I think is completely collapsed. I certainly see it happening to men, but when I, to me, the poignancy is when I see it happening to women and also queer people that the younger people have no sense of what you guys went through, of the sexism or the homophobia that you surmounted in your own time to become major respected literary artists. I mean, it's one thing to throw overboard a male who had all the advantages coming up anyway, not that it's ever easy. You still have to make it and there's a huge winnowing process, but that you would direct ageism toward people who already had to surmount tremendous sexism or homophobia or whatever else or racism. I mean, I think the, the reverence for older black writers is severely diminished. They want 35-year-old Black writers to sit at the feet of. And so to me, it's just this like triple whammy of poignancy that, my God, you know, you write so well about how long it was before you were given any women role models and you persevered. Yeah, well, as we were saying earlier, you know, suffering is inevitable. <laughs> I recognize what's happening and I hear it. And, and sometimes I feel a little finger pinch of hurt that you try not to dwell on. But, you know, we have our work to do. And uh, as I am often reminding former students who are moving quite astonishingly into mid-career as writers, nobody asked us to do this. When we sat down to write our first short stories, nobody was knocking at the door saying, finish, finish, I can't wait to read it. Um, <laughs> so, so over the course of this, yeah, there are many slings and arrows, but, but I don't think it's good for our souls to dwell. You know, let the work be the work. Let it stand. If it's read through a filter of misogyny, so be it. My commitment is to the work itself. The writer's commitment is to the work itself. I say in one of the essays that there are so many things you have to lock out of your workroom when you're composing a novel. And those things don't, don't diminish. They only increase. You know? so, so one of the things I find myself now having to lock out is ageism and never to, to apologize or to in any way take my eyes off the prize of the work itself. Just as when I'm reading a novel by a writer I admire, I don't care who that person is. I'm not flipping to the back to find out where they went to school or what they currently think about the election. 
you know, don't care. It's the work itself. But you are pro-dog and you probably do want to know if the writers have dogs. You make that, there's several essays where it's very clear that dog owners are, are a cut above. <laughs> well, we all know that. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. So speaking of assignments, you, you no longer have people whom you can make read stuff, but let's pretend for a moment that you can make the listeners of Unorthodox read stuff. Give us some assignments, past, present, from whenever of stuff that you just love, that you think we'll love. Oh my goodness. Let's see how, how to begin. I suppose rereading, and maybe this is, um, has to do with age. <laughs> the pleasure of rereading, of looking at books that were important to you or left an impression when you were a different, a different version of yourself. And to go back um, over the lockdown, I went back and, and read Brothers Karamazov, which I don't think I've read since college. It's a completely different book. And I appreciated things that I didn't appreciate first time around. So I think that just remembering those books that, that you have a vague memory of appreciating and going back and looking at those as I think I probably beat the reader over the head with, besides uh, my affinity for dogs, I have great affinity for the, especially the short stories of Vladimir Nabokov. They never lose their polish for me. Actually, I just had a, an email from a former student and we exchanged some thoughts about a wonderful, very short story of his called Torpid Smoke about the joy of being a, a languorous young poet. And they're not really stories. I mean, in some ways, so many of, of Nabokov's stories are, are moments in time or, or just a celebration of language. Going back to Chekhov is also a great pleasure for me. This is probably not going to, to do much for my academic credentials, but I've always advocated to young writers to read indiscriminately. Don't cancel any writer for any reason, um, especially when you're starting out in this profession, that, that find out what moves you, find out what, what works for you. And sometimes in order to do that, you have to sample everything. You know, when you raise kids, you find out that uh, if you put the right foods in front of them, eventually they'll eat in a balanced way. They will actually choose the good things eventually, as long as the good things are also on the table with the bad things. So I think the same is true for young writers in, in their reading life. With Nabokov, I've never read one of his short stories. I just always want to keep rereading Speak Memory, which I just think is just the greatest memoir. There's sort of that and then all other memoirs. No, you're right. But you would love the stories. What about stuff that lacks snob appeal? You were saying like, you know, we're ready to, to throw overboard any credibility you have with fellow writers. I mean, is it romance novels, police procedurals, thrillers, very pulpy science fiction, any of those? I mean, Michael Cunningham, I remember being interviewed once and he, he said, look, I'm a snob. I, you know, when I lie down after, I said, after my husband goes to bed, I lie down on the chaise long and I reread Proust or Alice McDermott or Faulkner or Jonathan Franzen or... Andre Asimov, but I'm not, I don't read police procedurals. I don't read romance novels. And I thought, well, shoot, you're missing out because I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious what, if there's any kind of just obvious comfort food in your reading diet and who those authors or genres are. Yeah, no, I don't read police procedurals <laughs> and science fiction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's been very, one of the hard things about teaching undergraduates in the last decade of my teaching was was so much fantasy and science fiction. Um, I'm with you there. I can't even join those conversations. I don't know what they're talking about. I read the first Harry Potter and I said, okay, I get the idea. 
And then I was kind of done. You know, all the more power. And uh, there's the argument that whatever gets young readers loving books is a good thing. And I think to a certain extent, that's true. On the other hand, whatever gets young readers stuck in being forever young readers, even when they're in their 60s and 70s and they're still looking for simplistic stories, that worries me. I love reading plays. That's sort of what I do. And I found that really helpful, especially during the the shutdown, when long books were, big novels were sort of hard to get into when we were all so distracted. But I love reading plays. I like going to plays, but I read recently read the new biography of Stoppard, Tom Stoppard, which brought me back to just reading through his collected plays. I think of that as kind of light, lighter reading, not that they're not difficult and complex. You know, Shakespeare's a playwright. But I get it. They're shorter, they're brisk. Yeah, and structure is so important. And that's, um, I mean, if there's anything sort of crossword puzzle delightful to me about putting a story together, composing a novel, it's the structure, the, the, the sentences, the meaning, the characters, that's the hard stuff. But structure is is the challenge, is the engineering challenge. And I love reading plays because it's so easy to identify the dramatic structure. So um, as is tradition on Unorthodox, always, we always want to end with the Jews. You grew up on Long Island. You knew a lot of Jews. Is there anything about us, and I, I want to preface this by saying this is an entirely safe, judgment-free zone. Is there anything about the Jews that you either always found baffling or curious or particularly appealing? I mean, is it, think of us as an, as an alien people for a moment. What do you think of us? You know, I've always been astonished by our similarities. You know, there's a sort of joke argument that the Irish are the lost tribe. We have certainly the same grounds of faith. Jesus was a Jew, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so we start there. Family and guilt and a sense of consequence. And I think maybe where we we sort of part ways is the sense of redemption, the sense of beyond the pale redemption. And in some ways, I think, then I'm harking back to my life on Long Island, it's like, we don't have to think about the Protestants, <laughs> you know, they're just there. The conversation is just between the two of us. Um, Fair enough. You know, but maybe it's as simplistic as the carrot and stick of the idea of immortality, um, the, the promise of immortality, the promise of heaven um, that is so much a part of Christianity. I wonder about that, and I admire, honestly, the de-emphasis on that, that um, that in some ways I think Christianity is catching up <laughs> or catching back with because there's so little talk about heaven and talk about immortality. And I think in the popular culture, immediately you seem self-deluded. But I've always admired the sort of the cool accepting attitude about life itself um, and life ending that I see in the Jewish faith that I think in Christianity we're too nervous about. Is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. And it's it's definitely the part of Christianity that's most appealing to me as I really, <laughs> I really want to talk about. I'm very drawn to, you know, I mean, the Jewish teaching, the medieval Jewish teaching, and there are many, as you correctly infer, there are many Jewish teachings on this, which is to say there's not really one regnant teaching at all, and therefore it's de-emphasized. 
But a very strong, persistent teaching is that there will be, at the end of time, the bodily resurrection of the dead. And it, it, that when you die, you don't go to heaven, you're dead. But when the Messiah comes in a thousand years or a million years or whatever, all the people who, who were inscribed in the book of life and led good lives and sort of have, will be given a piece of the world to come, will be given that piece with a bodily resurrection of the dead, where then we get to live on earth forever. And I think, and that's incredibly, you know, science fiction or fantasy. I mean, that's, it's, you know, it's like the golem. I mean, just the idea that you can make a person out of clay. It's really old school, lowbrow pulp novel stuff in Judaism, which most your cultured refined Jews don't talk about, but it's a very real teaching. And I kind of love it because I think, yeah, I'm not, I don't believe in the whole pearly gate, St. Peter's, you know, the whole Christian heaven thing. But do I want to come back and be resurrected and get to walk around with my family again? Yes, that sounds awesome. So that's my own way of kind of splitting the difference is to hark back to that, that possibility. So it's sort of like, if it's available, I'll take it. Definitely. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm terrified of death. I, I don't have any cool or sang-froid with regard to death. The thought terrifies me. And I definitely, um, I envy the people, and a lot of them are Christians, who have a kind of serenity about this life because they figure they'll get what's coming to them in a good way soon enough. I mean, what, what a great, that would definitely chill me out if I thought that. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think that? No, but that's why I like the conversation. And I suppose, yeah, there, there's there's the hope. Now, how do we reconcile the hope with our intelligence and with what we um, observe as the inevitable? And yet the hope persists, not just that it sounds nice, as you say, you know, but um, if there's not some sense of beyond this realm, then so much in this realm seems unjust and uh, meaningless and petty. And I think that's, the, that's why the conversation needs to continue, because somewhere in that conversation is, is our attempt to reconcile the meaninglessness of life with some innate sense that we have when we pause to think about it, that there is meaning. Well, I get a lot of meaning out of your books, and I want to thank you, Alice McDermott, for the new one, for What About the Baby, some thoughts on the art of fiction, and also for all the older ones, you know, Someone, Charming Billy, just, they're, they're all just, just terrific, and, uh, and thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. I'll go first, Liel. Mazal Tov on your on Yom Huladet Sameach, Yom Kristalnach Sameach. I want, I want you to have a happy birthday. A day of, uh, you know, burning candles and shattered glass, if you will. Well, thank you, Stephanie. But again, I'm serious about this. This should be a trend. You know what? I'm, I'm using the Mazal Tov to say, celebrate your Hebrew birthdays. Find out when they are and have yourself a merry little Hebrew birthday. It's such a good day to really kind of connect and just, you know, study something do something. Just feel, it should be your own private little thing, which I love. If you hear me typing, it's because I'm go I'm in Chabad.org trying to find what my uh, Jewish birthday is. What time were you born? Mm, morning, maybe? <laughs> I'm just going to go with morning. What is your Jewish name? I'm not telling you that. Hold on. Do I want to get Stephanie. newsletter? No. What? Stephanie Talabotnik. What is your Jewish name? You know this. My Hebrew, my Hebrew name is Chava Rachel. Oh, Chava Rachel. Chava Rachel, or Chava Fear in my Yiddish class, because I was the fourth Chava among them. 
which meant that my name was very popular with women between the ages of 50 and 70, which were the other people in my Yiddish class. Um, my Jewish birthday is Elul 28. You got an Elul birthday. So that's September 24th. Represent. That's a great, that's a great month. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, I don't know, maybe I was born in the afternoon. Mom, if you're listening, hit me up. When was I born? Um, I need my Jewish birthday. Let's all look up our Jewish birthdays. My Mazel Tov this week is to friend of the show, the French philosopher, writer, filmmaker, human rights activist, Bernard-Henri Lévy, who has a new book out, The Will to See. It is an astonishing book detailing his travels around the world to anywhere from Kurdistan to Nigeria to make sure that even though we may not be able to stop all cruelty and injustice, at the very least, we could stand there and bear witness and show the world that we're not turning our backs to them, which strikes me as such a deeply Jewish and deeply human thing to do. It's a great book. And Mazel Tov to Bernard for the book and the film of the same name. B-H-L. 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 Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios. And today is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibowitz. And on all other weeks, we are led by Mark Oppenheimer. Our producers are Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. Our managing producer, Sarah Feminator, Ader, is out on leave with Baby Ozzy. Our episode art is by Tablet's art director, Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by the Yiddish punk band Golem. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Send us comments, questions, and fetches at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We're a podcast. We love hearing your voices. Email us a voice memo or leave us an old fashioned voicemail at 914-570-4869. You can find all the details about today's show and our guests in the show notes, where you can also find a link to subscribe to our newsletter. To book a live taping in your community, yeah, we are doing those again. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. And to advertise on any of our podcasts, email podcasts at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to buy unorthodox merch. Follow us on Instagram at, at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join the rest of the J Crew in our very fun Facebook group. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Ariella Rosen and Rabbi Becca Walker, both conservative rabbis who tied the knot. They got married at Camp Ramah, with which they are both affiliated. Mazel tov to Rabbi Rosen and Rabbi Walker. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. By the way, I, I missed retake Stephanie. I missed like, no, let me do it again. It's so good to have you back. You have no idea how good it is to have you back. You mean mother, it has not like staunched my perfectionist impulse. It has not, not beaten it not out of me. at all. <laughs> okay, so Liel, hey, how are you? What's going on?